Well, good morning and welcome, Calvary Quakertown. It's great to have you join us this morning. We're in a series that we're calling The King. And the reason is we're trying to help correct any misunderstandings that we may have about Jesus. Let me explain it this way. I think that maybe the biggest obstacle to understanding the Bible or understanding the gospel is that we often replace the real Jesus with a Jesus of our own making, something that we make up. Let me ask, see if you recognize e either of these guys. How about the bail me out Jesus? Do you know this guy? You don't care too much about Jesus. Don't think about him too much. But once you're in a jam, once you're experiencing difficulty, you know where to run asking Jesus to bail you out. How about this one? The consultant Jesus. Do you know what a consultant is? A consultant is someone you bring in to look at your business, look at your finances, look at something, and then make recommendations to you as to what you should do. But you know, you can either take or leave the advice of the consultant. You don't have to do what the consultant says. You kind of write your check, send him on his way. You ever meet people like that? Do you ever act like that? You get input from Jesus. You seek advice, but maybe it doesn't fit with what you want, so you veto it. Thanks, Jesus consultant, but I don't think I'll do that. Well, Jesus is not interested in bailing you out, and Jesus is not interested in being your consultant. Jesus is the last and final king, and that should make all the difference in the world. We're working our way through selections in Matthew's gospel, trying to understand who this real Jesus is. And this morning, we come to chapter 8. Now, I have to tell you an important thing about chapter 8. Um, chapter 8 comes after chapters 5 through 7. That's really important to know. Because in 5 through 7, we get the Sermon on the Mount. And then in chapter 8, Jesus comes down from preaching the sermon. And in a sense, he now implements the sermon. And so the culture that he talked about on the mountain, he begins now to inaugurate as he comes down from the mountain. But chapters five through eight actually go all the way back to Matthew chapter four. As Jesus began to travel, he would say, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. In chapters five through seven, he explains the culture of this kingdom. And one of the best definitions I've ever heard about culture, it goes like this. Culture is the way we do things around here. Isn't that right? You know, Calvary Church kind of has a culture, the way we do things around here. Your family has a culture, kind of the way we do things around here. Your workplace has a culture, the way we do things around here. When the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is describing the culture of the kingdom, the way he wants things done around here. Do you ever notice when you go from culture to culture, there are different values and different priorities? So for example, in some cultures, being on time is a really big deal. That, that's not the Calvary culture, but there are some cultures like that. Um, and if you don't show up on time, you're actually lying if you said you were, other no, 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 we care about people. We'll get there when we get there. Cultural values. How about this one? You ever have dinner at someone's house or with another family? And one of their values, one of the marks of their culture is loud arguments and debates. And maybe you come from a culture where you don't raise your voice at each other. It seems like they're fighting and screaming at each other. They're just having fun. They're having a conversation. 
different cultures. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes the culture of the kingdom, the way he wants things done around here. Well, in chapter 8, he comes down from the mountain, and now he says, I've come to inaugurate this kingdom. And he begins to do acts, performs a series of miracles that actually implement the kingdom. Now, we're going to look at the whole chapter today, so obviously we're not going to look at any section in great detail. But if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 8. Use your phone, your iPad, whatever you use. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's not that long. And then we're going to come back, say a couple things about each one. We'll wrap it up with a few lessons, and then we're done. So Matthew chapter 8, right after the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I tell that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be, weep, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go. Let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with the word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what the prophet had spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took our infirmities and bore our diseases. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men came from the tombs and they met him. 
They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and, and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Five miracles, five miracles in quick succession. In a sense, Jesus talks about what the kingdom's going to be like. He comes down from the mountain and begins to implement the kingdom. And you know what's really striking about the first few miracles there? Nobody asks for anything. Jesus come down, comes down and just starts commanding and doing stuff. Well, let, let's take a couple of minutes to look at each of the miracles. The first one, the man approaches Jesus and he has leprosy. Leprosy. Now, you've got to understand that leprosy was kind of multifaceted. It was a physical, debilitating disease. Lots of diseases go under the umbrella of leprosy in the Bible, but the worst form was leprosy that kind of ate your body away. It wasn't just the physical problems. There were also relational consequences that came. Because leprosy was contagious, if you were diagnosed, you had to move away from your family, away from friends. You couldn't go to synagogue. You couldn't hang out with people. You had to move outside the city and be all alone. Not just that, the Pharisees in particular were fastidious about cleanliness. Now, I know you all wash your hands a whole lot because of COVID. Um, they were always washing themselves for spiritual, religious reasons. Uh, I'm kind of reading, I just finished reading, reading through Leviticus. Lots of cleanliness laws there, right? Clean this, put water on that, wash up from this. There was a spiritual principle behind that. And that is, we are unfit in and of ourselves to approach God. Therefore, we need to always be cleaning up. That's a picture, right? But in the physical realm, cleanliness was separation from other people. And so if you were a leper, here's what life was like for you. You had to move away from family, friends, society, move outside. And you were told that you were, were never allowed to comb your hair. It's kind of a weird thing, right? You were never allowed to kind of wash up. You had to wear ripped up and tattered clothing. In a sense, your appearance needed to match what was going on inside and with your body. You then had, if you were among people, suppose you had to you know, go to a store or something. If you were to be near people, you had to shout, unclean, unclean, and the people would obviously part in your presence. So can you imagine this guy? He lived outside the city. We don't know how long he had leprosy. We don't know what it was like for him. He, his hair is uncombed. His clothes are all ripped up, and he's shouting, unclean, unclean, and everybody's separating, and now Jesus is right before him. Jesus is in the crosshairs, and he comes up to Jesus, and he doesn't ask anything, and he doesn't say, Jesus, if you're, if you're able, heal me. He doesn't say that. He says, Jesus, if you're willing, heal me. And here was something else about this leprosy and uncleanness. If something clean touched something unclean, the clean became unclean. That kind of makes sense, right? If something was contaminated and it touched something uncontaminated, the uncontaminated became contaminated. 
When does Jesus touch this guy? Before he heals him. I was thinking about that. When was the last time time somebody touched this guy? You know, one of the great um, emotional problems that people are experiencing with all this physical separation we have to go through with COVID is not being able to touch. Some of you were huggers. I'm not missing out too much, but uh, some of you like touching. When was the last time somebody touched this guy? A month? A year? Five years? Ten years? He comes up and says, if you are willing, you can heal. Jesus touches him and then heals him. Jesus is reversing the polarity of cleanliness. It used to be, and if you read through Leviticus, it used to be when the clean touches the unclean, the clean becomes unclean. Oh, no, no, no. In the presence of the last and final king, when the ultimate clean touches what's unclean, what's unclean becomes clean. And then Jesus says, go show yourself to the priest. Let them confirm that you have been healed. Why did he have to go to the priest? So then he could go home. Then he could go back to synagogue. Then he could go back to his job. If, he wasn't, if, he was, if it wasn't confirmed he was healed, he wasn't allowed to go back yet. Get confirmation from the priest and go back home. Jesus comes down from the mountain and he's living out the Sermon on the Mount, right? He's living out the Beatitudes. Here he is. He's, he's being merciful and gracious, poor in spirit, loving, and he's sending those that have been distanced and outcast back home to be reconciled again. The next miracle is uh, kind of interesting. A centurion comes. Now, there are lots of surprises with this miracle, and I don't have time to kind of talk about it. I wish I could. Let, let me just mention a few. First of all, he's a Gentile. He's the wrong race. He's on the wrong team. He wears the wrong uniform. He's the wrong guy. I mean, the leper's probably Jewish, at least. This guy's a Gentile. If anybody's unclean, the Gentile's at least un unclean as much as the leper. The Gentile comes. Notice, he doesn't ask anything either. He makes a statement. My servant is home. He's paralyzed. He's suffering terribly. He doesn't ask anything. The wrong team. Here's something else that's shocking. He appeals for his servant. Do you understand how weird that must have been back in that culture? This guy's like a military leader, right? Maybe like a major. I don't know all the rankings well, but he's kind of like a major. Maybe he's like, you know, a captain. He's appealing on behalf of his servant. You know, I've got a servant. Servants were like property back then. He comes to Jesus and appeals to Jesus on behalf of another person. There's the Beatitudes again, right? There's the right attitude. He calls Jesus Lord. He's a military ranking officer. And he's calling some itinerant teacher, a Jewish guy, Lord? Here's a little hint when you're reading through Matthew, and I hope you're doing that these days. Non-followers of Jesus, non-Christians, non-disciples, they call Jesus rabbi, teacher, followers of Jesus, disciples. They call Jesus Lord. This guy from the wrong team, this guy from the wrong religion, this guy from the wrong nationality calls Jesus Lord. 
He appeals on behalf of his servant. He says he's unworthy for Jesus to even come into his house. But Jesus can do this miracle at a distance. And maybe the biggest shock of them all, Jesus is kind of amazed at his faith. And Jesus says, oh, let me tell you, salvation, the ultimate kingdom where this uh, kind of first iteration of the kingdom is going, the ultimate kingdom is like a giant party. It's like a big feast. And you all need to know, some Gentiles, some people from the other team are going to be at that party. And some team members who you think are going to be there, they're not going to be there. Can you imagine some of the people in the crowd? And Jesus is kind of hinting. Some of the Pharisees, the guy that, guys that wear the right uniform, check all the right boxes, they're not going to be at the ultimate party. But some people you would never expect are going to be at the party. Well, isn't that interesting? Lots of surprises, shocking surprises in the incident with the centurion. The next one doesn't seem to fit, right? Peter's mother-in-law. I'm not sure what Peter thought about Jesus healing his mother-in-law. We won't go there. But Jesus shows up at Peter's house. Peter's mother-in-law, lying with a fever, probably unconscious. Again, there's no request for Jesus to do anything. She doesn't say, she doesn't wake up, Jesus, please heal me. Nothing. Jesus walks over, touches her, and heals her. The first three miracles, there's never a request. Jesus isn't coming down from the mountain offering to be our assistant, offering to voluntarily do what the people want. He comes down from the mountain pronouncing things, changing things, implementing and inaugurating his kingdom and program. That's what he does. Why is this miracle there? I don't know. I didn't write it. Ask Matthew one day. Um, why is, is it here? Uh, is it here to show us that the first pope was married? Uh, probably not. Is it here to say um, Jesus is interested in even the small, seemingly in, incidental, insignificant kind of illnesses? She has a fever. We don't know how serious. Uh, I don't think so. Is the point to say, hey, once Jesus touches you, you need to get up and serve because she gets up and I don't know. But I wonder if this isn't the reason. In Jesus' kingdom, the way things are going to be around here forever and ever, the original, the original intention will be the ultimate destination. No illnesses, no diseases, no sicknesses. People living and being as God intended and created them to be. Oh yeah, and one more point. You notice if we take the first three miracles together, how crazy these three must have seemed to Jesus' first listeners. Now, let, let me uh, quote to you a verse that Paul wrote from Galatians. And lots of people believe that Galatians was one of the first books of the New Testament written. Now, I know when you read, you kind of think Matthew. You know, well, the Gospels talk about what happened earlier. Paul writes talking about what happened later. But Galatians was one of the first books written. And you know what Paul wrote? You keep those three miracles in mind. Remember what Paul wrote in Galatians 3.28? Here's what he wrote. In my kingdom, Jesus says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free. Huh. With that as kind of an outline, there's the first three miracles, right? In the kingdom of Christ, there is neither male nor female, 
Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. In Jesus' kingdom, just like the Sermon on the Mount says, everyone comes on equal footing. Jesus accepts those that come. But all that come must come to him and through him. Well, the next miracle really doesn't have people. People are kind of the recipients of the benefit, but they're not part of the, uh, of the miracle. Jesus takes his disciples around in a boat. Now, remember, some of these guys were fishermen. They spent their lives on the Sea of Galilee. They're on the Sea of Galilee, and a ferocious storm comes up. These fishermen are afraid for their lives. They think the boat is going down. They know this is their last day. You know, they didn't make out their will right, and they're wondering what's going to happen. Jesus sound asleep in the boat. I'm not sure how. Maybe I know something. He was so tired. I don't know. He's sleeping. They're frantic. They go back and shake him away. Jesus, don't you care about us? We're all going to drown. Here's another little uh, interesting thing. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this same miracle, the stilling of the sea. In Mark and Luke, Jesus calms the sea and then gives them a little lesson on faith. So he calms the sea and then says, why do you have such little faith? Look, if I'm in the boat, we'll be okay, right? And so whether or not there's a storm, we'll be okay, right? If I'm in the boat, we're okay. Like that old song, Christ in your vessel. If I'm in the boat, we're good, right? We're good. In Matthew's gospel, the order's reversed. Jesus gives the faith lesson before he calms the storm. I don't know about you, I would take the lesson a whole lot better after the waves have stopped and the wind stopped. Why do you have little faith? Yeah, I, I really shouldn't have little faith. You know what? I need that big faith because Jesus calmed the sea. Yeah, how about if the wind's still raging and the waves are still crashing over the boat and Jesus says, as he's rocking, why don't you guys have any faith? Do you put your faith and do you have most confidence after the storms have subsided? Can you trust and live without fear in the midst of the storm? Kind of interesting, isn't it? What's the point of this miracle? This king, he's sovereign over nature. That kind of takes you back to Genesis, right? If he spoke it into being, he can tell it to sit and heal. The storm is right. And Jesus says to the storm, just like an obedient dog, get over here and sit down, heal. And the storm has no other recourse. It stops. It's just perfectly still. And the disciples ask what uh, needs to be our question regularly. Who is this guy? He can not only preach like five through seven. He not only touches and makes lepers' bodies perfectly healthy. He not only heals at a distance someone who plays for the wrong team and is paralyzed, he not only can walk up to someone who's unconscious, suffering with a fever, touch her, and she gets up. He tells the raging storm to be still, and it's perfectly calm. He's not your consultant, friends. He's not your bail-me-out little good luck charm. He's the last and final king. He's not to be trifled with. Well, they make it to the other shore. 
And there's another miracle that ends the chapter. Two guys are demon-possessed, and they are destroying the whole neighborhood. People won't even go that direction. The other Gospels tell us they chain them, they break the chains apart. People are scared to death to get there. Interestingly, the disciples ask the question, who is this guy at the end of the storm incident? <laughs> the demon-possessed guys answer the question. They're the only ones in the whole chapter to get it right. Son of God, have you come here to judge us before the time? They know who he is. They're the only ones in the chapter to know who he is. Son of God, have you come here to judge us before our time? Now, why is this miracle here? You notice when the people come from the town, they don't say, oh, Jesus, please stay with us and help us out. What do they say? Get out of here. You, you go. You go. Is this put here to show us that people that love their finances or people that love their religion more than they love Jesus will always disrupt? No, I don't think so. Is this here to show us that pigs should be more important than people? Look, those lessons are important, but I don't think that's the point. The point here is that just like Jesus is master over the dark and dangerous, stormy, dreaded sea, so he is master over supernature, not just nature. I know that there are some teachers and some commentators that look at this and they say, oh, so um, Jesus really doesn't judge the demon. He doesn't judge him. He sends him into the pigs. The pigs run down a cliff and drown. That kind of seems like judgment to me. I think, that, Jesus, did you come to judge us before our time? I think Jesus says, heck yeah. <laughs> and he does it. He comes down from the mountains and starts doing stuff. So what's, uh, what's the basic point? Or how, why are these stories here? Well, I think here's a simple one. Sin has brought multifaceted alienation. We're alienated and separated physically. We're separated spiritually, psychologically, relationally. Sin affects every part of us and every relationship. Isn't that right? And so in our world, we're still dealing with the effects of COVID. We feel those points of alienation in every area of life. And we feel them keenly in every area of life. But notice what Matthew 8 tells us. Salvation, the gospel, Jesus comes to bring reconciliation in all areas of life. Now look, I don't mean to make light of the spiritual piece here that he reconciles us to God. That's kind of the engine. But Matthew 8 says, Jesus comes to reconcile us to our bodies and we'll have healthy bodies forever in this kingdom. Reconcile us with other people. We'll live in community. Yes, reconcile us to God. Reconcile us to his intent reconciliation multifaceted because alienation's multifaceted. It all comes together. Jesus the King brings it all. So what's the point? Well, I want to end by looking at the two interactions Jesus has in between the miracles. The first that this guy comes up, a teacher of the law, right? A biblical scholar, right? Somebody who went to all kinds of seminary, right? Teaches it. He comes up and says, teacher, teacher, uh, remember I told you, teacher and lawyer, yeah, this guy doesn't understand who Jesus is. He calls him teacher. That means he's an outsider. He's not an inside. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. You know, that should make us almost cringe. The leper comes, 
reminding himself of what Jesus can do. The centurion comes reflecting on what Jesus can do. Lord, if you are willing, Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed. They come thinking and reminding themselves of what Jesus can do. This guy comes and tells Jesus what he can do. I will follow you wherever. Look, I look around at your group of followers here and let them have any education. They don't know the scriptures real well. You need somebody like me on your team. You know what? I'm willing to join. He's oblivious to who Jesus is and oblivious to the cost of following him. Does that sound familiar? People oblivious to who Jesus really is. Good luck charm consultant, bail me out, oblivious to who he really is and oblivious to the cost of following him. The second guy comes and says, Jesus, I really want to follow. Let me first go bury my father. Now, you got to understand, bury my father is an idiom, right? Kind of an expression um, that doesn't really mean what it says. So for example, we say, it's raining cats and dogs. There aren't animals falling from the sky, right? I'm going to give you a piece of my mind. You probably can't spare it, right? They're idioms. They're expressions that don't mean what they say. This guy comes and he speaks in an idiom. Let me go first bury my father. He's Jewish. If his dad's already dead, he's got to be buried within 24 hours. He wouldn't be here with Jesus. He'd be home at the funeral. So the dad didn't die yet. If dad's on his sick bed, why isn't he attending? It's an expression. What's the expression? Let me take care of my dad until he dies. And once the inheritance check clears, I'm following you. Let me cash that baby. And then this is a financial decision. The guy says, I will follow Jesus first. Let me get the inheritance. Put that in the bank. Make some good investments. And then I'll follow. Are you oblivious to who Jesus is? Are you oblivious to the cost? And are there other priorities that you need to get in order? And once you do these things, then you may give Jesus a shot after you work on these other things. Interesting, isn't it? In the middle of the five miracles, two little conversations that I think Matthew uses to say, are you in one of these camps? Do you have clarity on who Jesus is and are you humble enough to admit it and follow? Do you have other priorities beside Jesus? And are you willing to give them up and make him your top priority? Five miracles. Two simple conversations. Ball's on our court now. What are we going to do? Let's stand and pray. Father, we give you thanks for these five stories that at first seem strange, and yet in the five miracles, we see the movement to the ultimate miracle. In the cleansing, we see the ultimate cleansing coming. In the restoration and reconciliation, we see the ultimate reconciliation coming. In the small salvations and healing, we see the ultimate salvation and healing. All these miracles are pointing to the ultimate victory that the last and final king will win on the cross and on Easter morning. Father, help us to not be oblivious to who he is, 
not be oblivious to the cost, and not having other priorities ahead of him. Help us to say, we know who you are, Jesus. We know who we are. We make you our top priority. We will follow wherever you lead. We pray in your name. Amen.